to 32. Page 857 in the Bibles spread throughout the church. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with, with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarrelling, deception, malicious behaviour and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. This St Andrews is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Rebecca's prayer, and I just add to that, that Lord, I pray that this morning there's a number who will be listening online, uh, watching right now live, there's a number at the first service watched online as well, and others over the weeks as well as those who are here in this building. And Lord, we recognise that at this moment there will be people here who have, uh, like myself, have relatives and friends who are either undergoing gender reassignment surgery uh, um, are in same-sex relationships and a variety of other uh, situations, as well as there'll be some here this morning uh, who have changed their view, the historic view, to the following society's view and uh, will struggle hearing uh, that morning's passage of Scripture read out. Our Lord, a variety of views, there'll be questions and doubts, and Lord, it, it, it's, I feel completely inadequate uh, to the task here this morning. So, Lord, we, as a congregation, invite the spirit of truth here in our presence this morning. We invite uh, that my message this morning would not carry a hint of spiritual pride or arrogance or that I've arrived, but there would be a gracious humility with it. I also pray that, Lord, that against any fear of man, uh, any desire to compromise you, uh, for, for getting the praise and accolades of our society. Lord, we, we cry out that, Lord, that here at St. Andrews, with humble, broken, repentant hearts, we would seek your glory, your honour. And so, Lord, we invite you here this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Work in my heart and also in the listeners' hearts as we continue in our series in the book of Romans. Amen. 
So welcome to our ongoing series in the book of Romans. We are doing a passage-by-passage look. And uh, as I noted in the last two weeks in the newsletter, realizing the sensitivities of this and the pastoral situations of a number of people in a church, and I also heard of a number more approached me, uh, texting me. They appreciated the message, and there was nothing wrong with it, but they also you know, just opened their hearts about the heartache they're going through with loved ones. Uh, so we recognize that in this current cultural moment, uh, this text would be seen, I suspect, by our government, a uh, government that we are to honour and respect, but it would be seen by the government of New Zealand as offensive, as well as by the media, university system, and many in our broader society, and perhaps uh, are some here this morning. So perhaps it is fitting recognise that to have a few preliminary comments. First, good, biblically faithful messages are not just a commentary. Any person could go to a good biblical commentary, such as the Enduring Word commentary. It's a free online commentary that anyone can access on the internet. Or other commentaries and read a commentary on this text. Or they could go online. There's thousands of sermons on on this passage available on YouTube, including messages that will, in effect, encourage you and me to dismiss this passage of Scripture. Uh, That's just a reality. And I've listened to some of those messages as well. However, good messages are not just commentaries, but also recognize my heart, where it's at, uh, my hurts and vulnerabilities, as well as yours, as well as uh, recognizing where our society is at, and attempt to temper the message to the moment. So as I said, I recognize there will be here some today who have relatives who are undergoing same-sex, uh, in same-sex relationships or undergoing gender reassignment, and there'll be some here perhaps who have strong same-sex attraction and yet you have felt excluded, misunderstood and judged. Uh, for some, this passage is a trigger for intense personal pain, and they've also found that the Christian community hasn't been a safe place for their doubts, hurts, or inquiries. My, my friend, a good, faithful, evangelical Presbyterian minister, his first time coming to church as a Canadian atheist, living with a, his Canadian atheist girlfriend, and he had his gay friend, and he, and he was going to church. He thought, wow! I want to hear about this God and religion thing. I've never done that. I'll come and check it out. So he turns up to church with his gay friend. Everyone in the church thought he was a same-sex partner and he was shunned. His first experience of Christians. So, you know, I recognize there's a whole bunch of, 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 of things that are out there this morning. So before we look at this passage in its context, just remember to have modest expectations on what a single expository message given through a very flawed vessel me can achieve. We're going through a book of the Bible. Uh, we're not stopping in this passage for a year to deal with all of the issues. There's, there, there, it's just, uh, there's, so there'll be some, there are many pressing biblical and cultural and pastoral issues. And I, I could, there's all sorts of texts and counter arguments if you've done it. So if you want more on it, come and have a coffee with me. I've got more. I'm just trying to keep to a, a reasonable time frame. This sermon's going to go twice as long as normal. I like finishing in 20 minutes. This is, this is just like totally against my thing going over time. But that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, so uh, this morning we're particularly focusing on verses 24 to 27. The others will be touched on and the rest of the verses will be touched on the following weeks. But I'm just dealing with what's possibly the most raw and sensitive area. So now getting to the message, I want to, this is what we're going to do this morning. Uh, four calls. A call to be faithful to God uh, in his word in the midst of cultural pressure. A call to sensitively and wisely contextualize the gospel, that's the Christian faith, to hearers so that in as much as is possible, the only offense is the cross of Christ. Three, a call to place Romans 1, 24 to 32 in, a, in Paul's broader narrative of the universal reign of sin and sin's solution being Christ. And four, 
a call to cry out to the Holy Spirit's discernment in the challenging and stretching personal situations. And also this cultural moment where if you are a young mum and a dad, uh, I had actually a chat with an amazing young woman who was at the first service, and she just made an anecdote, which I will share at the end, which was just, yeah, really enlightening. Uh, so we do need a lot of wisdom. Now, because of the sensitivities of the text, points one, two, and four, one, two, and four, are going around the text, giving some little ideas about how to handle some difficult and challenging texts. And number three is getting into the exegesis itself to be seen a little bit in its context. So this is, there's lots more that could be said, and in some ways I'm doing light once over lightly over, the, over some of those verses. Uh, and and that's, there's a reason for that. It's because of the moment we live in. If we were another time, I might do it a little differently. Uh, but I think in totality, it should hopefully be a, a good, faithful message. Uh, so uh, lastly, take all four points together. All right? So there'll be something that you might hear that really just upsets you. It's, it's designed to be taken all together. For example, Jesus uh, said uh, to be, that we should be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. But if you just took Jesus' first words, oh, Jesus wants me to be a serpent. Okay, let's go and have, what's a serpent? I need to be like a serpent. You go to Genesis chapter 3. Oh, there's a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. God wants me like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. You might just get the wrong end of the stick there in what Jesus is talking about. You take the total text in its context. So first, uh, as we get underway, one, a call to be faithful to God and his word in the midst of cultural pressure. One of the realities that Christians in all cultures at all times face, not just us, is dealing with the fact that the teachings of Jesus Christ will have some areas that is in line with the culture, that's not offensive at all to the culture to accept, which is great. But then on the other hand, there will be beliefs central to the gospel that the society finds as offensive. Now, this is true whether you're a church in northern India, whether you're a church in southern Africa, or whether you happen to have a church that's planted right next to a very progressive uh, liberal university in Europe or America. And so biblical faith at all times is going to hold some beliefs that the culture thinks is okay, and other beliefs are that are different and, yes, offensive to the broader culture. The temptation I face, uh, because I love the praise of man and have a fear of man, is to only speak on the topics that are pre-approved by the broader society, so don't look out of place and mute or downplay topics that are in conflict. But whatever my desires in the flesh, being a Christian means loving Christ and obeying him, being loyal to him and his teaching above every other competing loyalty or ideology, and seeking Christ's praise more than the praise of man. This is, to be clear, not a loyalty to St. Andrew's or to me, or even my interpretation of this morning's text, because I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be. Uh, I'm human, but it's loyalty to Christ. Jesus is Lord, not our culture. So one of my interests in church history is the journey of Christians you know, throughout history. And one of the things that I have encountered and been interested in is how do churches respond when massive cultural pressure comes on them to abandon what the Bible clearly says and what Christians throughout 2,000 years have said and to abandon that to go with what the culture says. How does the church 
respond to that cultural pressure. It's not just us here and now. Churches all around the world and over all ages. For example, uh, in China right now, there's a state-approved church in China, and there's a massive pressure. So I was reading some articles where they had lovely Ten Commandments you know, on the things, and, and, the, and the passages of uh, Romans 3, we're all, we all fall short of the glory of God. And the, China, and the Chinese state of church are now asking them to be removed, and they're wanting Mao and Stalin and Lenin's texts put up in place. And they're wanting, not alongside the Bible, to have the, teach, the teachings of the president of China uh, brought in. So that is what you would call cultural pressure, right? Isn't that fair to say? And so the question is, do you go and say, sure, we'll remove the Ten Commandments and we'll have let, um, Stalin's, you know, or whatever, all the other statements out there, on, you know, uh, up there. Or do you say, no, we won't. And if you say, no, we won't, it's, it's, life's going to be difficult for you, right? So this is, it's not just here. So what happens to the church and, and how does the church respond? And basically what I've discovered is there are two responses, and interesting outcomes. And mostly, so one side is left to decide, church decides, nope, we're going to bite the bullet. We're going to face the pressure and be faithful to Scripture. And the other one is, oh, this sucks, let's go with society. And they more or less compromise to varying degrees. And in history, often, there are some exceptions, and I will mention one, often on the time where churches were faithful to God's Word in the face of cultural pressure, there is a visible blessing and strengthening of the church that is noticeable. And the churches that compromise often over, usually a century or two, wither and die. Now, there are exceptions to that. For example, in Japan in the 16th and 17th century, every Japanese Christian was told to denounce Christ, to spit on icons, walk across pictures of, uh, of Christ, and curse his name. And if you didn't, you'd be killed. And, and the hidden Christians were the ones who, who denounced Christ. Uh, and every year in cities in Japan, they had this ceremony for centuries where every citizen would walk across. And you even slow for a second. If you look slightly hesitant, you've pulled out a line. And so the faithful church uh, was wiped out. And I'm not blaming the hidden Christians uh, uh, because it was a pretty tough spot for them to live on. About 30,000 survived three centuries of hidden underground every year denouncing Christ, but keeping their faith uh, are separate. So there is this pressure. There are exceptions there. So why have I talked about this before I get into the text? Why am I talking about cultural pressure? Because we need to face a reality as a Christian community in New Zealand that there is a building cultural pressure that particularly your children and, and young people are noticing, but it's really all of us, and I certainly have been experiencing it as a Presbyterian minister, and that is to change the, the historic biblical understanding of not just sex and sexuality, but really family life, humans being made in the image of God, both male and female, and to throw that away for a new ethic. This is, this is not sounding overly surprising. You guys are with me. You can see that's happening out in society. Now, I hasten to add, this is not about love and respect for people, you know, love of people or respect for people's choices. It's not about mercy or grace or the other biblical doctrines which we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this morning. It is not that. It is a full and complete joy-filled celebration of what God's word calls sin. This is our life and right now. And while no one but the Lord knows the future, it is possible this cultural pressure will continue to build in the coming years. So it's relevant to ask, how did churches respond to the cultural pressures in the past? Now, one time, and this is from a PhD. Uh, it's, a, it's a book. The, it's not the PhD itself, but the book came. It was a PhD received with distinction uh, recently, and it was on church history, and it's actually of the New Zealand church. 
All right? I'll give you an example of cultural pressure. And some of you will go, that's crazy. No one would possibly do that. May I suggest in 200 years' time, people will look at what churches are abiding to now. If the Lord hasn't returned, they'll say, they were crazy. How could they possibly do that? So in the 1870s, there was a wave of higher criticism uh, that the Bible is not true, that miracles didn't happen, and it went all the way to effectively atheism in its extreme form. There was a, a bit of a spectrum there. And it was in 1870s to the 1970s, and it, it gripped the Presbyterian church. And I remember as a young man, talking to retired Presbyterian ministers, and it was, it was incredible what they went through uh, at that time. And so in uh, 1932, this is part of his PhD that received in distinction, in 1932 there was a general assembly of all the Presbyterian ministers and elders, they used to grab up very, look very formal back in the day, and so they gathered, and Miller, who was a gospel-minded minister, so per, a bit the background, a person had, who was in charge of the theological hall was denouncing the authority of Scripture, you can't trust the Bible, and he was saying, oh, and Jesus didn't die for your sins. Now, these are really important stuff, right? right? And so a guy, Boston minister says, I'm going to turn up to the General Assembly and get this denounced. So he turned up and could not find a single Presbyterian minister on the face of New Zealand who was willing to say that he believed that the Bible was the word of God and that Jesus died for our sin. That's what you call cultural pressure. This is basic stuff. Now, why? Now, there were plenty there who believed it but they were fearful and intimidated, and it would be seen as a personal attack on this person who, who had this position of power and authority. We couldn't be seen as personally attacking because that would be mean. We don't want to be mean Christians, do we? Or not nice. We'd be seen as bigoted. We wouldn't want that. So in the end, the person the Miller did find was an elder from Waiwira South, and he collapsed afterwards, seconding the motion. That's cultural pressure. right? So I remember as a, as a young man seeing an old minister, and he... Uh, said that he was told the miracles didn't happen, Jesus wasn't resurrected, don't believe in all this stuff, it's superstition. You all go for modernity. And as he was going through college, one day he broke down, it was class after class of this, and he went into one old professor who did believe in this stuff. He said, I've got it all wrong. Everything I believe stupid. Oh, I should just go with what everyone else is believing. And the professor said it was just the start of the Pentecostal and Charismatic Renewal. Now, I know the Pentecostal and Charismatic Renewal had its weaknesses, but, it, it, but he said, look at the churches that are starting to die right now. The Presbyterian church was starting a nosedive of decline. He said, look at the churches that are growing. He said, there, there are truck drivers out there start planting churches. They're thriving. There was a move of the Spirit. He said, what do they believe in? He said, they believe in the power of God. And he actually left saying, I, he decided, even though I don't have answers for all these questions about the Wellhausen consensus on the Pentateuch, which later was found to be discredited, and some of the other attacks, which was not was spurious scholarly, it was not factually based. But at the time, it was what they were imbibing. And he said, I am going to put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word and the power of God. And his ministry was blessed. So why am I saying this? Because we need to be able to see that we're not the only time we're coming under cultural pressure. And so the question is for you. Do you want the praise of man or the praise of God? If you were to turn up in 1932 at the assembly, would you be willing to speak up? Well, what do I want? Well, I'll be honest, I want the praise of man and God. <laughs> but if it comes a choice, who will you choose? So first, a call to be faithful to God in his word. You know, what will you do when cultural pressure builds? And what is your authority from which you decide good and evil, right and wrong? Do you have any bottom lines? These things are good to work out. And the advantage is once you've, 
work this out, often because often where you start is it will tell you where you end up. So if you start in a different place, we have culture as your authority, you'll always end up in a different place. But if you have the word of God as your authority, then where you start is where you end up. So that's number one. And then there's two, a call to sensitively and wisely contextualize the gospel to the hearers so that in as much as possible, the only offense is the cross of Christ. Okay, someone says, yep, I do want to come under the authority of scriptures. I don't want to buckle under increasing cultural pressure. I want to be like the Christians throughout all of the centuries who in the face of cultural pressure to compromise remain faithful. That's great. But now your call in the face of this increasing cultural pressure is to sensitively and wisely contextualize the gospel, the Christian faith, to hearers so that in as much as possible, the only offense is the cross of Christ. And you go, what on earth did Alistair just say? Well, let me tell you. So when Jesus, this is really key, you get to see this, I'm going to give examples of this. So when Jesus was talking about really tough topics, who he was talking to and the reason and purpose of that conversation showed the content of it. For example, a very controversial topic is divorce and remarriage. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders, and the religious leaders of the time were wanting to compromise and divorce and remarriage for any reason, Jesus takes them all the way back to Adam and Eve, and he says, in the beginning it was not so doing all that. It's one man, one woman who love each other till death do they? That's right. Well done. To death do they part. And, that, and, and so then Jesus says, there's no grounds for divorce except for marital, I've been a victim of marital unfaithfulness. Well, that's great, but you have then all these scenarios and painful scenarios of people who are divorced and whatever. What, what happens there? Well, Jesus, if you know the story, when he met the Samaritan woman who was married five times, divorced five times, and was now living in a casual relationship, as you do. And Jesus met her. There was humility. There was gentleness. There was hope. And her life was changed, and she was not condemned. Are you with me? Same Jesus. He wasn't a politician different context. Paul in Romans is actually the same. You notice, for example, that in Romans 15, verse 15, he says to the Romans about the letter of Rome, guys, look, I do realize now that I've finished this letter, I have been really bold on a few points here. I've taken a bit of discretion here to be super bold, since I think Paul's always bold. I think he's like extra bold. It's like it's not two shots, like three shot coffee. And so he's extra bold. But, and so you see that with, with his opening chapter, where he says that those that are worshipping the other gods, they know that God exists, but they've denied him. They're worshipping idols, and they're storing some of themselves up for the wrath of God. <laughs> right? That's what he says, right? But that same Paul, when he turns up in Athens for a whole bunch of pagans who he's gone around the city, there are thousands of temples, there's the temple to the unknown God, and they've all been worshipping it, and they've never heard the gospel. He turns up. His, the, now, he doesn't, he's not a politician. He doesn't change the content, but his approach is respectful. It starts off with respecting the universal religious impulse, and he points them to Jesus. And he gently uh, tries to aim to undermine the whole idolatry system, but in a respectful way. And so you can see contextualization takes place. So what about in relation to our text this morning? We need the whole counsel of God, not just a single Bible text. Don't be like the, the religious leaders with the woman caught in adultery, weaponizing a Bible verse to destroy someone. We need the whole counsel of God. So, for example, we know in the Bible, two women who are living together in the same house, they're both prostitutes. They come to King Solomon for justice. Do you know this text? 
Do you know the story? I hope you know your Bible. When he, when he approaches them, the one of the prostitutes, it's a custody dispute, one of the prostitutes, and not only does she get the child, but her maternal instinct and who she is as a woman and a mother is affirmed. It's actually, and it's the word of God. And so, and, and so it's chosen as one of the texts. Do we affirm people made in the image of God when they come to church this morning? But it, the text does that, I hasten to add, without celebrating her day job. <laughs> Do you guys get the, get, the, get the vibe, the difference? So there's so many passages like that give affirmation, justice, mercy, and compassion to those who are in situations that miss God's best. The real, so the reality is this. I don't want to be misunderstood here, right? So the first one, I've sort of hit those who are sort of wanting to compromise God's word. I'm saying, don't do it. It's a, it's a, it'll kill this church. It'll, you'll be unfaithful. It'll bring destruction. But this is a second warning to those who are holding on to God's word. You need to hear this. The reality is we can say things that are faithful and true to the Bible, but in terms of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and in terms of what people hear can give a misleading understanding of the good news of Jesus. So it's faithful and true to God's word. I would argue it, and historically the church would argue it, for 2,000 years to say that those who act on same-sex attraction desires by having sex with someone else of the same sex are sinning. But depending on the hearer's knowledge of the gospel, how you say it could be actually misleading. Perhaps what they hear is the Christian faith message is this. Homosexuals and all who are fornicating are going to burn in hell. But all those who are like me who are heterosexuals have lived good religious lives and awaited to the marriage day before they had sex. I'm a good religious person, so I'm going to go to heaven because of my good religious life. Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel? Yeah, I'm glad. We're not works here. So three, I'm getting to, is place Romans 1, 24, 32 in Paul's broader narrative of the universal reign of sin and sin's solution being Christ. Now we're getting a little bit into the exegesis here, a little bit of the nitty-gritty. So when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, there were two groups. You've got to picture this. There were two groups in the Roman city, and then the church came out of those two groups. One group was about 90, 90%, up maybe 95, but most of the Jewish made about 5 to 10% of the population. 90%, let's go with that for now, were pagan Roman citizens. So they, they, were, they were born in Italy, they were worshipping the idols, they were immersed in the Greco-Roman worldview. And then, on the other hand, there was 5 or 10%, this was the Jewish diaspora who were following Judaism, had set up synagogues and so forth within Rome and everywhere else they had gone. And also, there was some God-fearers who came from that lot over to here, but they hadn't got circumcised. It's a bit of a messy situation, but there you go. So the church had people who came to it from both backgrounds. From that background, they came to know Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And from that background, they came to know Jesus, the Lord and Savior. Their backgrounds were very different. Now, it's a generalization I'm making here, but I'm on good archaeological backgrounds to make this, this case. The backgrounds were different. So picture it. The Roman ex-pagans of the first century most of them would have come to faith as adults. And their pre-Jesus life would be what some might call colourful or interesting, but what the Bible would say is dark and sordid. So to quote the, London's, the London Museum's, uh, uh, all societies celebrating LGBTQ stuff, as you're aware. So the London Museum, imbibed with that, is celebrating LGBTQ relationships throughout history. And they were celebrating the Greco-Roman world. And this is what they said. 
that sex between men or women was deeply embedded in Greek and Roman society of the first century. For example, the Roman Emperor Hadrian founded an entire city in Egypt in honor of his beloved male part sexual partner, Antonius. He loved Antonius so much, he named his city after him. And the Emperor Nero was married to another man, uh, also, and all the other, other things. And also, there was gender reassignment surgery of a type going back on in the day. So this is what it says in the, uh, the London Museum. And now we know from the documents that Londinium, that's the Roman time name for London, of Hadrian's time, that same-sex relationships throughout London and the rest of the Greco-Roman world were normal and commonplace. So, and, and so most of the new Roman believers, on the basis of probability, before they came to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, would have had sex with both sexes. Right? They would have had relationships, bisexual or homosexual, or you know, anyway. So that was what was going on. The New Testament agrees with this reality. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, it gives a list of sins that is pretty much similar to the Romans list. And then it says, you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So you had that group. Then there was also in the Church of Rome the Jewish background. And on the surface, get this, they were outwardly following them in society, the ones out inside, and also had come in from it. Outwardly, before they encountered Jesus, they were following the Mosaic law, they were following the Ten Commandments, they, were, they knew that you were married with one man and one woman till death do you part, and they were desperately judging all the evil pagans who were going to go burn in hell. That was the Jewish group. And so both of them had come to faith in Christ. Now you'd think that in the church in Rome, the two groups, the ex-pagans and the ex-followers of Judaism, who'd come to know Jesus, would get along just great. There were tensions in Rome, and actually a lot throughout the New Testament. And so one of the underlying themes of Romans deals with these two groups of believers with varying different backgrounds. So what does Paul do to address these two groups? Bear with me. Did he say, well, isn't it great uh, that we've got some bad people here who've come from bad lifestyles, who've been up to all the things the Greek or Romans have been doing, all the stuff there in those list of sins, and now they can see the good religious people who are acting good religious lives, and they can learn not to be bad anymore. Is that what Paul does? No. Uh, it, it, he points out that both groups are sinners and need Jesus, a bit like the power of the prodigal son with a loving father. There's the hell-raising hedonist and the broken religious judgmental son and the loving father. Both sons were broken. So in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32, which includes this morning's passage, God's word condemns the hedonistic corrupt Roman sinners and all those who have followed their footsteps over the centuries. But it also judges the hypocritical religious sinners. So just imagine on the day if you were at church a couple of centuries ago, 2,000 years ago, and Paul's letter was being read out for the first time. It's just arrived. You're, maybe you're at Priscilla and Aquila's house church, and you're from a Jewish background. And then you're here reading all about the, the, the sample list of the pagan religious sins and the sexual immorality and everything else being read out. It's possible you're going, you tell him, Paul, this city is sin central. All these, I hope you ex-pagans are feeling bad, bad, bad for your bad pre-Jesus life. Then Paul, in chapter 2, flips the script. And then he also says this. He, gives, he turns on to the religious ones. He says, to all religious do-gooders, he basically says they're hypocrites. He goes through, okay, do you think you're good? 
but do you really keep the law? You judge the pagan Romans and their wild, evil parties, but do you have the sin of lust? Do you secretly covet their lifestyles? Do you lie? Verse after verse, he hits, this, he hits the religious sinners. Boom, boom, boom. This is the next chapter we're looking at. And then Paul, at the end of this, this passage of Scripture, stay with me, people. I know it's been a little long, but we're, just, we're getting there. At the end of this, in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says this. He says, the name of Jesus Christ, the name of God is blasphemed because of you religious Jews. Basically, if he was saying it today, he's saying you might, to a pastor, you might condemn homosexuality, but do you have a secret porn addiction? And some pastors have. You know, you do this, we had affairs. And so what Paul does in the church of Rome is he's, he puts them into two nifty categories. One is pagan Roman sinners, and the other is religious do-gooder, hypocritical sinners. And Paul, in a, in a sense of infuriating friends and losing people, says you're both sinners who need Jesus. That's the background, right? Now, they had come to know Christ, and they probably were forgiven, but that was their background, and that background was influencing the way they were thinking. So if someone reads the, this passage here, this text we read this morning, you need to tell them, like every other Bible passage, it does need to be read in its context. And the context that all scholars call this is the universal reign of sin. Now, Paul later on does answer questions like, well, if we're all sinners and broken and can be forgiven, why am I so hard trying to follow the right path? Why don't I just sin lots and get forgiven later? Paul answers that question. And Paul also answers the value on holiness and the thing. But he's not there yet. Right now, he's on the universal reign of sin. And his argument is that whether you're a pagan Roman background or a religious Jewish background, you are under the universal reign of sin. So here's the, here's the thing. We all need a saviour, and his name is Jesus. In chapter 3, he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we see this all come out in passage after passage in Romans. So here's the question. If we present the gospel, the Christian faith, in the area of sexual ethics in a way that hints or misleads people to think that they'll be saved by being heterosexuals who wait till marriage before they have sex, and on that basis, they will have eternal life, you've missed missed the meaning of the gospel. Or if we approach people who are living in sin, we approach them with the attitude that we're better than them because of how religiously or outwardly clean our lives are, we miss the text of Romans 1 and 2. And we also need to, the Bible at times chooses the most unlikely individuals, broken people, to be heroes. Countless examples in the Bible. We're all in the same boat this morning. We all need the forgiveness of Christ. And lastly, a call for crying out the Holy Spirit's discernment and challenging and stretching personal situations. So I was, in, I was, I was geeking out, nerding out with some other uh, gospel-minded ministers about Romans. Yeah, they were chatting on the phone and, and we're, we're over Skype and, and Zoom, and, and we're just chatting about the Romans in the context of this passage. And one of them said, Alec, this is the guy actually who'd, who'd come to faith because his gay friend had taken him to church. You may remember that? Well, he became a Christian in, not because of Christians, but in spite of them. Um, because God is amazing. And he, and he came to believe the gospel, and he's a thorough evangelical. He believes man and woman, all that, not because of what he's seen with Christians, but because of the word of God and the evidence and the compelling nature of it. He's, a, he's an amazing guy. But he said, Alistair, you know, we know that it wasn't just a messy pagan history pasts. They were walking in the door with messy current situations. And, like there were slaves, right? They were, they, were, they were part of the early church, and those slaves 
didn't have, couldn't say no to their masters. And there are others who are concubines, and there are others who are all sorts they've been involved in. And they, or the first time they turned up to church, they may have turned up with their same-sex partner or whatever. And they said, what did Priscilla do? She's in charge of her and Aquila are in charge of one of the house churches. I said, I don't know what Priscilla and Aquila did, but I know I wouldn't have wanted to be on the day that Paul's letter arrived was read out in front of all of them. It would have been tough. Um, but so what, what would have happened, I imagine, is this is that I suspect there would have been some tears and hugs in, that fir- in a first century equivalent of a cup of tea to those who were hurting, and a recognition of the context, what we just said, we're all on the same boat that ne- of sin-wise, all needing a saviour. So here's this, the writings of the New Testament. This passage of Scripture, as offensive as it may be to some ears, and the rest of the New Testament changed the Greek or Roman world. There was a radical gospel of purity. One man, one woman, for lifetime, loving, who loved their children, of faithful in marriage, and this is the call, and we're called to it. But it was brought by loving, humble, gentle, spirit-filled people, and it changed the Roman world. Uh, also, uh, sociologists say that Christians out, uh, had higher birth rates than the pagans, so we actually out-birth uh, rated them as well. But that's over three centuries. But you can look at these other things like that. Larger families, uh, that basically, because of the sexual practice they're involved in, they also got rid of their children they didn't want. And Christians would, pick, would foster children, they'd pick them off the streets, and we lived it out. Yeah, the Christianity just grew fast. Because they held to the teachings of Jesus and didn't compromise to fit in with the culture, but they did it in a humble way. So for so Christians at all times need the extra infilling of the Holy Spirit that's appropriate to every situation and conversation that enables us not to celebrate, endorse, or agree with what God calls sin. Lord, may I never do that. Yet as overflowing with gentleness and compassion, wisdom and tact and prayerfulness that's attractive to those looking on, that gives hope and is filled with humility. A Christian, he's a Puritan of the 16th century, said this, We are not fit to talk to a person who is in sin until we have been broken and are continued to be broken by our own sin. If you're not broken by your own sin, if you aren't actually heart-wrenched about your failures to your marriages, your children, and to those around you, then perhaps you're not fit yet to talk to a person who's in sin. That's from the 16th century, a Puritan. So we need an extra infilling also wisdom of what to say to our children and grandchildren who are hearing a very different perspective in school and society. We are actually, oh, this is, I hate to say this, but it needs to be said, it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me we're heading very fast back to a Greco-Roman world. So I, this is the, from um, uh, a major US publication that came out, Newsweek, and it said nearly 40% of United States' Gen Zs, that's the youngest generation, are now identifying as LGBTQ, 40%. And interesting, at the end of the first service, I talked to a young lady here who goes to the Geraldine High, very intelligent. I asked her, what did you make? And she said that 40% statistic, she said, that she said, that, that's, I, said I can see that being Geraldine's reality soon. She's a young lady and, and going to the thing. So this is written 40%. So if you're a parent, so then the next generation, well, we'd probably be at the Greco-Roman level if there's not a revival. So if you're a parent of school-aged children, you will perhaps need an extra degree of God's wisdom in this season to resist the culture's pressure, but in a way 
that is wise, spirit-filled, and discerning, that doesn't put you in a thing of being the judgmental, bigoted Christian, right? There needs to be, you need to be like Jesus when he was being asked by the questions by the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's some savviness there with what we do. Lastly, on point four, don't be one of Job's friends. Does anyone remember Job? What happened to Job? He lost everything. And then Job had some religious friends who came along to help him out and give trite religious advice that were not pleasing in the Lord's sight. So, li- so listen more, pray more, and be willing to say these words. I've had to learn to say them rather than, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't have the answer. To that. That's okay, answer to say. I, I don't have the but I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> I am, and then do pray. Be filled with the spirit of truth, not the spirit of the culture or age, with the spirit of truth, which does give the right answer. And sometimes that right answer is listening in prayer. So four things, a call to be faithful to God and his word in the midst of cultural pressure. All churches are under pressure right around the world. We're not alone. Lots of Christians are suffering right now because they're not buckling in, not just in the West, but in, in China, in Africa, all sorts of places. We want to be faithful regardless of cultural pressure. And I'm not disrespecting the Chinese, the Japanese Christians who caved, we, you know, but, but I want to be faithful. Two, a call to sensitively and wisely contextualize the gospel to hearers so that in as much as possible, the only offense is the cross of Christ. That is, we're all sinners who need the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, a call to place Romans 1, 24 to 32 in this Paul's broader narrative of the universal reign of sin and sin's solution being Christ. And four, we are in changing times. We need to cry out for the Holy Spirit's discernment in challenging and stretching personal situations. So just this last week, someone in Auckland, their kids going into school, everyone's getting involved in Pride Week right, you know, with, the, with the thing, it's all, and the compulsory celebration of it with all the, with all the six colours and everything else. And they're ch- just the pressure for the children to conform in that environment. And uh, so, yeah, wisdom, prayer, discernment, only the Lord can give it. Let's pray. Or lastly, if you want, you disagree with me, I could be wrong. I'm not God. Take me out for a coffee. I'll shout. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And I pray that even now, if for those who are suffering, for those who are hurting, who have children or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, brothers and sisters, uh, who are in same-sex relationships, uh, for those who may be here this morning with same-sex attraction, Lord, I pray that, that, Lord, for every person in every challenging situation, your spirit would touch them afresh. And I pray that, Lord, that here at this church, we would be faithful to you and your word, but all of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.